0: Hi there, everyone. Uh, welcome out to Grace Church. My name is Josh. I'm one of our pastors here. I'm actually um, our pastor of Life Groups. And so what that means is I get to work uh, with everyone looking for a community. And uh, it's an amazing thing to get to work with our leaders and to get to help people find and create a community together. And so I'm hoping that we can only uh, restore more of that this year as we move to the fall. And um, if you've ever been interested in leading a a community of people who share life together uh, around Jesus, um, I would be so interested in having a conversation with you because uh, we need more ways uh, to gather and meet with one another And uh, there's lots of ideas out there, and uh, I just am super open to that and uh, excited to see what God does in this next season in our church. Um, This weekend, we are continuing a series uh, we've called God Is. And uh, actually, last week, Pastor Jeff was up here. He was talking uh, through his part of the conversation, and he mentioned that he was at Zion National Park, and he shared a picture of him uh, climbing up Angels Landing. He actually made it to uh, Scouts Lookout. And then after that, after that two-mile hike uphill, there's a climb for another half mile. And uh, wouldn't you know it that the week after Pastor Jeff was at Zion National Park, I was at Zion National Park, and I actually climbed that last half mile that Pastor Jeff couldn't. So I just wanted to take this weekend to make sure (laughs) that— (laughs) <laughs> this, has, this has nothing to do with the message this weekend, but I just thought if I was up here and the timing was right, we would uh, make a point of it. So uh, we're in a series called God Is, and uh, we've been talking about um, just God's explanation and description of himself. Actually, what we have said each week, and um, we've been saying that life is built from the heart up, or it's built from the soul up. Um, and what we mean by that, or maybe another way to say it is, what we believe about God uh, defines everything else about our life. Um, our view of God is actually crucial um, because it starts at that whole and uh, that heart and soul perception and it begins to play itself out in other areas of our life every area of life and so it's uh, immensely important that we actually what we think about God is accurate and true and uh, complete. And so what we've been doing is we've been going to this part of the Bible in Exodus 34, where we kind of get the most clear description uh, of God, of himself. And actually this part of the Bible is the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible. So over 30 times in the Bible, whether in part or in whole, this part gets repeated, It it gets quoted. The Bible quotes itself. Uh, the most in this verse. And it's, and it's the character of God. It's how He describes Himself and His heart toward us. And so uh, we've been walking through this series for several weeks now. I encourage you, if uh, this is your first week here, or maybe you've missed a few along the way, to go back and get the whole picture, because this is a, a linear conversation. We're uh, continuing to unpack this one Uh, section of the Bible, this most repeated part. And so we're going to pick that back up again today, and uh, I'll tell you where we're at this weekend. So it says here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we've talked uh, all about those different attributes, his compassion, uh, his graciousness, how he's slow to anger, his love, his, his said his loyal love, and his faithfulness. Um, And now we're starting to get into some of the difficult parts, (laughs) the parts that are a little bit more confusing and uncomfortable to talk about. And so I get both of those weekends. And so this weekend, uh, we're gonna talk about uh, this, how God maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And uh, next week for Father's Day, we're going to talk about whatever this means. So uh, looking forward to pushing all that to next week. And I encourage you to come back and we will unpack all of that there. This week, we're just going to be talking about how God is forgiving. And uh, even that in of itself and and, um, all that goes into what he's actually forgiving is going to be a big conversation today. And um, we've been talking through this series a lot about the original language of the Bible. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. um, The New Testament was written in Greek. And uh, what we have is an English translation. And actually there's lots of English translations. We've been reading from what we call the NIV or the New International Version. That's the Bibles in the chairs uh, right in front of you. It's also uh, what we refer to most here at Grace, like what the translation we use. Um, I would encourage you as we're going through all these different Hebrew words, and you're like, I don't know Hebrew, that's great. Uh, You shouldn't, Um, (laughs) but a really helpful way to kind of make that accessible to you is to read Uh, different translations of the Bible, and you'll begin to see things that uh, these scholars see and all the work they have to do when they're translating. You'll kind of get the fruit of that just by comparing different translations. And so this weekend, um, I actually want to show you the English Standard Version or the ESV of that last verse and to begin to to dissect uh, some of what's there. And so the ESV reads this way. It says, uh, God's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Still kind of weird, a little bit similar, but there's a, a few different things that we're gonna uh, do to unpack this today because um, these three words I've highlighted, right? Iniquity, transgression, and sin, or in the, in the NIV, it says uh, like wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Um, these three words are, are three different words, and uh, they are coloring in. They're they're painting in a portrait of the human condition, of, of how how the world actually is. It's broken, and um, the Bible has a lot to say <laughs> about how messed up the world is and uh, where we as human beings. Um, are are really missing the mark. And I think what's uh, very challenging for us when we read the Bible, especially parts of the Bible that uh, where we see God's laws, like his commands maybe, do this, don't do this, it feels very strange to us, right? We begin to read parts of the Bible and uh, these are laws or commands that are 4,000 years old. for a totally different culture and a different time, and, and it feels very weird to read them. And I think what can happen when we read the Bible and we read about things like sin and, and human brokenness is we can feel like maybe um, it's irrelevant, or maybe it's antiquated, like it's outdated. And that's that's a big pushback I sometimes get with the Bible, is that it feels antiquated. It is definitely ancient, uh, but I think what we're, we're going to find today— um, I want us to to push the brakes on that a little bit. I don't want to typecast the Bible's view of of people and of the world as some kind of ancient and relevant uh, worldview. Um, I actually think as we get into it today, we're going to see that actually the Bible has a very complex and a very uh, deep understanding of the human condition, it's probably not what you would expect. And so as we walk through that today, uh, sin and human brokenness, I pray that you just be like gracious with me because there's a lot I would like to cover. I'd love to do like an eight-week series on this, but we're just going to talk about it for, you know, one one night tonight um, and and, and cover it just today. So those three words, we're going to start there and try to unpack what these three Hebrew words, uh, why God's using them to kind of paint in uh, his his view of the, of the human condition. So the first word um, is a vone, a vone. It actually means moral failure. Or actually, more literally, what it means in context is uh, crooked or bent. And so you're gonna have all these cool little visualizations. If, like this is where it's supposed to go. Uh, something bends it. Or, or is uh, crooked and makes it divert from its intended path. And so, uh, actually, there's ways that the Bible talks about, it, like uh, someone who's older might have an avone back, you know, it might be <laughs> crooked bent over, or you might be on a path that's not even, and it's crooked, it's bent, or it weaves and waves. Um, so there's like normal uses of this word, but here when we're talking about um, kind of the human condition, what it's mostly referring to is our personal choices, our moral uh, choices, actually, and how those are supposed to be even and upright and heading a certain way, but instead they get distorted and bent out of shape. Um, and the Bible even translates this as perverted. Like it's just, it's distorted. And when this shows up in the Bible, you see it in reference to things like adultery and murder and lying, all these broken and bent ways uh, and, and moral failure. Actually, one of the reasons I showed you that ESV uh, translation was because the most common form of uh, talking about God punishing sin is um, the word avone. Actually, what what it'll say is visiting the iniquity, visiting the avone. And so actually when you read something like God is gonna punish sin, what you're actually reading is avone, that God's going to allow the consequences of their avone uh, to sit on them, or he visits them. He allows it to play out the way it naturally would. You wouldn't read it that way, right? Like, you read that in our other uh, translation, it's, it's a little bit more obscure. You begin to paint images in here that actually, the Hebrew language is not painting. And so that's actually what you see this, this word being used for. It's the most common way that we talk about God allowing people to go the way uh, that's leading them toward their natural consequences. Another thing that the Bible does, talking about Avon, is actually, um, you may have to bear the weight of those consequences. But God talks about in Isaiah 53, he says, I'm gonna send someone who will actually carry that weight for you. So if we have to carry the weight of our consequences, God says, actually, I'm going to send someone who will bear that weight for you, who will carry your avone, your iniquity, um, your wickedness, your guilt. These are all the ways that it gets translated. And uh, that's what this first word is doing. It's painting in a picture of like what it it looks like for God's desire to really be to help crooked people be made whole again and and find him and be pointed back to to his design and direction. Uh, The second word is peshah. So uh, Pesha is relational failure. So uh, what you see this in the context more so is like breaking trust with one another, like betraying someone or uh, violating a trust in a relationship. And so what, what ends up happening is like we're supposed to have uh, this withness, but what's, what's happening is something is breaking that trust off and it's keeping uh, us from being where things are actually supposed to be. Uh, you see this a lot when it talks about even a whole group of people, like nations, will have treaties with one another. Hey, we're not going to go at war with one another. And when someone breaks that treaty, they have peshah. All right, there, they, there is relational trust that has been broken. There's also like examples of family members. If they make an accusation, like you have peshah with that family member. Um, Or uh, maybe your neighbor, uh, there's a verse that talks about uh, you go on a journey and your neighbor steals something from your house and you're supposed to be able to trust your neighbor, but now you have Peshaw with them because they're a thief. Um, And I think what's very important for us pushing this through the Exodus 34 passage we're talking about with God, what God's like, is the most elevated and most important relationship in the Bible is our relationship with God. And so this gets talked a bunch about how uh, God's people are supposed to have a covenantal relationship with him or a committed relationship to him. And God is totally in, but his people fail uh, to honor that covenant and they break his trust over and over and over again. And uh, people and humans are the ones always violating that trust and betraying uh, God's covenant relationship. God would even send prophets to say, hey, like you need to find your way back. Like things aren't okay. You think they're okay, but they're actually not. This also uh, happens with humans against humans, right? Like people against people. All of a sudden, uh, what you see happening most in the Bible is that people are ignoring um, or justifying the mistreatment of other people. They ignore and just justify neglecting the needy and being oppressive and um, abusing people. And sometimes in the name of national security or in the name of a strong economy, and uh, God confronts that. And he says that uh, there is peshah, like the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And actually, again, you know how I was saying that um, God in Isaiah 53 said that someone, he would send someone to carry our avon. He actually, in that same uh, section in Isaiah 53, says that he's gonna send someone who would uh, pay the cost. He would die for our transgression like he would stand in the gap for this relational trust and this this breakdown of relationship. And he was gonna send someone who would actually pay uh, and repair that, that breakdown that has happened. So those are the first two. Uh, the last one is kata. Kata is much more of a general term. Actually the other two, even umbrella, like this umbrella is over it. It's a much more general term that really just talks about missing the mark. And so uh, if this is where you're supposed to be aimed at, like. Any other place you aim besides it is missing the mark. Um, Actually, what also happens in the Bible sometimes is um, what you'll see people doing who are in sin and it's being pointed out. Sometimes what they're doing is they're not just missing the mark, but they're saying that the mark they're missing, they're actually saying, this is what's good. They begin to redefine what good is. And they begin to actually create different marks that they are purposefully aimed at. And sometimes it's just missing it altogether. And so you might see this in the Bible. It might say something like a warrior, a warrior um, who's good with their weapon does not kata. They don't miss, (laughs) right? Like a bad warrior misses, but a good warrior uh, does not kata with their weapon. Um, you also see it uh, maybe if you're like going on a journey and you're rushed and you're hurried. I don't know if you're on vacation and you know uh, you book the wrong flight or something like that. And uh, all of a sudden you're not like at your destination anymore and you lose your way. I guess in Bible times you get eaten by a bear or something like that. Um, but this is that, what that kata means. It just means missing the mark. It just means to fail. If there was like YouTube back in the Bible, there'd be kata videos, fail videos. That's what it'd be. It's just all general types of failure. But in the Bible, um, one of the most important ways that we see, like what's, what's right, what we're aiming toward and what's missing the mark is, um, maybe you're familiar with the 10 Commandments. So like the 10 Commandments, uh, four of them, talk about ways that we miss the mark with God in our relationship with Him to love and honor Him. And the other six of the 10 Commandments have to do with how we fail to love and honor people. They are fellow humans. And and those are examples. They're do not do this commands, but they're examples of missing the mark. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So it's more than just uh, not doing the right thing, right? That is that is what it means, but it also means redefining what's bad and saying that it's good. And the re- like, you may think I don't do that, but we do. Like we all do that whenever we feel like something's good for us, but it may come at the expense of others. And so it's good for us, <laughs> but it's maybe affecting other people in ways we're not, we're not able to see or we don't want to see, and uh, God sees it. God sees what is good, and he is just, and he is perfect, and uh, God sees it, and he says, you know, this is my design, my definition, my direction, and anything apart from that is not good. So uh, those are the three words. There you go. I hope that was, this was a fun way to start, right? I told you this was going to be like super challenging this weekend. Um, but the, these are coloring in that... Uh, description of the human condition of the world. And I think what's most important that we acknowledge here is this really isn't a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible has a much more advanced view of like what's going on in the world and what sin actually is than just here are the things you don't do and here are the things you you do do. It's it's actually, I think, more so painting a picture of things aren't supposed to be this way. More than a, a checklist of do this and don't do that, it's saying actually sin is everything the way it's not supposed to be and God sees it. And he calls it that. He calls it avon and pasha and kata. And he's saying, all of this is not how I designed it. It's not how I created it. It's not how I've called you to live with me. I think a a good example of this probably is um, driving a car, okay? Um, So go study the history of like how the car was invented. But very few things have impacted uh, the world as much as the invention of of the automobile. And so go like Google that sometime and like nerd out on it. But um, in many good ways, right? Like if I didn't have a car to get here today, I would be all sweaty because it's so humid outside and it would be uncomfortable to preach, but I got to drive here and uh, that's great. And so the car has done many good things, but it's interesting as uh, our team was researching this, we found a Washington Post article. It said in the past 20 years, more people have died from an automobile accident than both world wars combined. Since January of uh, 2000, there have been 624,000 people who have died in automobile-related accidents. In World War I and World War II, there was 535,000. So almost 100,000 more people. So you see something good, right? You see something with, Uh, a a ton of potential and uh, a ton of potential good, but also probably we're going to have to put some regulations in place, especially if lots of people are going to be out on the road at the same time. Uh, We probably should put rules and regulations there. And when those rules and regulations get broken, right? You know, you drive without a license, you uh, go over the speed limit, you drive the wrong way down a one-way road. This is a bone. It's like, okay, well, this is breaking the rules here. (laughs) Like we got, we got to have some boundaries here to keep people safe. The peshah is when what we're doing, driving actually begins to affect others. It's, it's when we're reckless driving. It's when we actually get into a collision or an accident and all of those, you know, 600,000 deaths occur. There's actual relational breakdown and trust and harm. And uh, there's fear. And the kata is just all the general failures of driving. It's like bad maintenance, uh, not taking care of your car. Any, it's like the whole umbrella uh, of everything you could do wrong with your vehicle. It's even, um, so one time I was working with resettling refugees here in Akron. And uh, there, there was this uh, man from Syria and he was trying to get his license. And so I was taking him on some uh, driving uh, practice. And uh, he was great. I mean, he was a fine driver, but what he did uh, was he used both feet. <laughs> and so he would break with the left, and he would gas with the right. And I stopped him, and I was like, "You can't do that. Like, you will so totally fail your driver's exam." And he got like really sad. He's like, "I have done it this way for so long." And he's like, "Wants his license?" I was like, "Dude, if you could just like pass the test, then you can drive that way as much as you want. But you can't do that at the exam. That's what kata is. It's like you, this is just not the way it's supposed to be done." And so, what is important for us is we begin to unpack this. View of the human condition, and uh, where do we fall in, in this list, in this uh, portrait of, of what the world is like? I would say this I would say that all of us contribute to the cycle of human failure and brokenness. Of course, we all uh, experience effects of it, right? You may not ever actually cause an accident, but you may get in one, right. Um, But actually what the Bible is trying to show us is that that definition of sin and brokenness, we all contribute, we all add to, we all are some of the cause of the effect of human brokenness and human sin and human failure. Other parts of the Bible reveal this too. In Romans three, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We miss the mark. Also in 1 John, it says, if we claim to be without sin, that's not me, Well, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Because if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So so the biblical portrait, the biblical worldview of what we're like is that we are all broken. (laughs) We are all broken. We all sin in one way or another, whether it's that moral failure, whether it's the relational breakdown, whether it's just the general missing the mark of God's design and definition of direction, we know that we're broken. And we say that, right? We know we're not perfect. No one claims that. But sometimes we don't know exactly what's wrong. We just feel it, right? We know we're not perfect, but we can't pinpoint all the sins in our life. Or maybe we, we can't see the big ones. And we're like, I know this is one thing. And it's hard. It's hard to begin to wrap Our minds around this—it's a very daunting task. It's actually uh, a lot of us avoid it, right? A lot of us avoid that pain and avoid our sin, and uh, maybe are afraid to call it sin the way God would call um, it—brokenness and sin and failure and missing the mark. One of the things that's going to be so important, though, right? We're talking about how God forgives today. I want to try to try to uh, fix our understanding, or uh, you know pause and redo our understanding of sin. It's not just a checklist, it's really a whole uh, complex issue. But something that's important for us to know about forgiveness is that it's costly. Forgiveness is costly because sin is costly. So what happens here is is we're saying that sin, uh, forgiving it isn't free. Forgiveness is not saying sin has no cost, it's not a big deal. Actually, what we see throughout the Bible is that God um, is the one offering to pay that cost on behalf of us. There's another fancy Bible word called atonement, and atoning just means to pay or to, to cover. Um, and the, the Bible's full of this, of, of God wanting to atone and to pay and to cover um, that cost that naturally we experience being in a broken world and contributing to a broken world. And so this is important because one of the one of the biggest questions I get when people get really stuck on the Bible is uh, they start to say, "Josh, I actually, am, I, I love this Jesus stuff. Um, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's accepting, he's gentle." But then I start to read this this God in the Old Testament, and uh, for some reason he feels a lot more angry and judgmental, and doesn't seem like the Jesus I'm reading in the New Testament. And uh, I hear that a lot. I, I mean, as someone who's read the whole Bible, I actually see a ton of examples in the Old Testament for God's compassion and forgiveness. One of them being the most quoted verse from the Old Testament. Like God's primary definition of his character is that he is compassionate and gracious and loving and faithful and forgiving. He's slow to anger. He forgives sin. And so I would encourage you, maybe you have that viewpoint because you've never read that part of the Bible and you're afraid to. And I'd say, you're actually gonna see uh, God's love and his heart for his people and wanting to rescue them and draw them back. You're gonna see that come through a lot more maybe than you've heard or you would expect. But then you get to Jesus, right? And we just think he shows up on the scene and he's just immediately forgiving. Like he doesn't ever say anything bad, maybe to the religious leaders. Um, He's just always accepting, always forgiving. He wants to forgive everyone. But the part that we forget about Jesus's life is how every gospel account of his life ends, is that he dies. The reason Jesus could go around forgiving everyone the way he did was not because sin wasn't a big deal to him or less of a big deal than God in the Old Testament. It's because he knew why he came. He came to pay a cost. He came to die for sin. And so the reason Jesus from the onset is doing that is because he knows why he's here. He knows that he's going to ultimately pay that cost for us and stand in the gap. And so forgiveness is costly because sin is costly. But what does that look like? The the Bible doesn't really ever define forgiveness. We've got that word atonement, like paying for sin, Um, but there's no like clear definition. What you get is a lot of examples. A lot of examples of people asking for God's forgiveness, or even actually um, where I want us to go today is John 8. John 8, 2 through 11. I actually think Jesus is a great place to go and that this is what God is like when he interacts with sinful, broken people and how he forgives them. So uh, turn to John 8. Uh, I said there was some Bibles in the chairs in front of you, underneath the chairs. Uh, Open up your app. Uh, Turn over there to John 8. And uh, we're going to read this... uh, Account together of Jesus interacting with someone caught in sin. So we're starting in verse two. It says, At dawn, uh, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. This is super normal. Lots of people gathered to hear Jesus teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. All right. So this is already pretty weird. Here's someone caught in adultery. So here's a woman uh, who was married and she's sleeping with another man and she's caught. And the religious leaders decide this is a great moment to uh, drag her out in front of a whole large group of people and see what Jesus has to say about it. So then you're probably also wondering what's up with this uh, law of Moses? Is that like a real thing? It is a real thing. Go over to Deuteronomy 22 and you'll actually get a whole chapter talking about um, what marriage covenant is, like what a marriage should be. And all these laws written to protect Marriages in the day. So it's weird. Again, it's like 4,000 years old. It's not the way you would think today. Uh, But the purpose of that chapter was not to destroy life. It was to protect life. And actually what it said is that if someone was caught in adultery, the man and the woman were supposed to be put to death. And I don't see the man anywhere in this passage. This is like purposely this shameful, fear-mongering moment with this woman to cast her out in front of these people in hopes that they can trip Jesus up. They're missing the heart of God's law. They're missing the heart of God totally. And they're doing it at the expense of this woman. So let's continue. So Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus starts writing in the sand. I don't know what he's writing. Maybe he's like writing all their sins in the sand or something. Wouldn't that be something? It's like your name here and then all the things you've done and then the next name. And all of a sudden uh, people begin to walk away because Jesus says, how about whoever is without sin gets to throw the first stone? Apparently these older people who actually knew, (laughs) yeah, that's not me. They begin to walk away all the way down to the youngest and they leave and it's just Jesus left because Jesus is the only one who has a right to stand there before her and cast a stone. Where are the accusers? There's none. And Jesus responds, this is the heart of God's forgiveness. Then neither do I condemn you. That's not saying, hey, that's not really a sin anymore. Oh, it's not a big deal. I have every right to condemn you. I'm the only perfect one who is without sin. And I I won't. And later at the end of John, he'll go and die for every sin. And he says, go now, you're forgiven and leave your life of sin. So what's all this about? This is a a very good portrait of what God's heart is like toward us. Actually, one of the ways I was reading it as I was studying it said, this skillfully illustrates the harmony of justice and mercy in Christ's salvation God pronounces judgment on the sin, but provides a way of escape for the condemnation. Jesus doesn't encourage the sin or say it's not a big deal, but he loves the sinner, he loves that person. And Jesus silences the critics of the world while healing hearts that are burdened with guilt and shame. So maybe you feel like her. Maybe this is why you're unwilling to call something sin that God calls sin, or why you're afraid to meet God in that space is because you had her experience. When people hear about your brokenness and your failure, they shame you, they accuse you, they drag you out in front of everyone. And their purpose is not to build you up and to heal you and mend you, but their purpose is to tear you down and cut you and make sure that you feel like nothing. And Jesus meets us in that moment. Like if, if, you, if you felt that way about your sin, like this, this moment is for you. Jesus wants to interact with you in a way where he would take and bear that sin, where he would die for it, where he would cover it, where he would stand in the gap so that we might be able to experience freedom from this life of sin. We were talking about this as a team I think this is fair to say that God's desire to forgive sin appears to be stronger than his desire to hand people over to the consequences of their sin. You get that? When God sees your sin and you're afraid to acknowledge it or you don't even know where to start, God wants to meet you there. And I think his primary motive is to forgive you, not to hand you over to the consequences of your sin. He does, right? He he visits the iniquity. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Sin has a cost. He pays that cost one way or another. You can either pay it on your own with separation from God and life with God, or you can take what Jesus has done for you because he is eager to forgive. So let's say it this way, that God's forgiveness is an invitation back to life with him. If sin is the way life isn't supposed to be, and if forgiveness has a cost because sin has a cost, really what forgiveness is trying to do is it's an invitation back to life with God. It's a good invitation. Uh, this is pretty silly, but as I was thinking about this, me and my wife, as she helps me write my sermons. Um, we were talking about one of our favorite Christmas movies. So in 2018, they came out with a new version of The Grinch. right, there's like the 60s version of the Grinch, and it's like really bad quality. And then there's the Jim Carrey one, which is just creepy. And now Illumination Studios has this awesome Grinch movie. If you've never watched it, you have to go watch it. We watch it every year. And uh, so at the end, you know, same plot. Uh, The Grinch steals Christmas, then his heart grows and he returns everything. And he feels like a loser and goes back to his cave on the mountain. And then Cindy Lou Who shows up and knocks on the door. And he says, why are you here? She goes, I'm here to invite you to Christmas dinner. And he says, "Um, but I stole Christmas. I took all your presents and food and ruined the whole day for you. Like, why why would you do that? Um, And she goes, I know, like, I know you did all that. Um, She says, we're gonna invite you anyway. And he says, why would you do that? And she says, because you've been alone long enough. You've been alone long enough. See, what I love about the ending of that movie is it's an invitation to be a part of what he's been missing out on. It wasn't like, hey Grinch, like you really know next year, like you really shouldn't steal Christmas. You know that's a sin, right? Like it's not an explanation. It's not a, hey, here's the way you can make up for it. And uh, maybe if you stay up on the hill and stay away from us, we'll kind of start to trust you again. It's an invitation back into the community and I think that's what God is offering to us. He doesn't see our sin primarily as this thing we have to make up for um, or the thing, hey, make sure I can point this out to you. We know life isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God's saying, I wanna invite you to receive and enjoy life the way it's supposed to be with me. And so um, actually the way I wanted to end this weekend is a, uh, this is, I mean, I could have talked a ton about how I've had to personally wrestle through receiving God's forgiveness for myself because I am a, a broken, messed up person. And sometimes it's hard to be a pastor. Um, and that's real. I have to continue to, to work through that with God, my own brokenness and failure and how that affects people. But you know what I do most as a pastor is um, I interact with you all. Um, multiple times a week, I'll have a meeting scheduled whether someone feels out of connection card or whether someone just schedules to meet with me or someone's new. And uh, the primary thing that I'm pastoring and counseling people through is believing and receiving God's forgiveness. You guys are so gracious to like tell me where your life actually is. And in those moments I have to counsel you and pastor you. And so what I wanted to do this weekend is, I wanted to have just a one-on-one between me and you about what I would do if you're in that situation. If you're needing to experience God's forgiveness right now, you're afraid to admit it, or, or you see it clearly, and you're afraid to, to know what God will be like in that space, or you don't even know where to begin. I just wanna take five minutes to walk you through three different chapters of the Bible. I'm not gonna teach them, I'm not gonna preach them. I'm just gonna devotionally read them to you and uh, write them down for later if you wanna to, want to read more, but I hope that you can actually begin to experience and believe God's forgiveness for yourself. The first chapter is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by David, he's a king, and he used his power and authority to sleep with another woman and uh, murder her husband. And he gets called out. And when his sin is exposed, he's broken, and he says this, he says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, "'according to your unfailing love, "'according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, David knows that his sin is first and foremost a breakdown between his relationship with God this is something that God pays the cost for. This is something that is breaking his world. And he goes to God. He continues, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or works, or I would bring it to you, You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. What David also knows is that sin begins at the heart level and he needs nothing less than being healed and restored at that heart level. He needs a clean heart. He needs a broken heart. Sin starts at that inward level. And this is where he needs to meet God with it. Not just get my behaviors together, stop committing adultery and murdering people. No, this is, this is something that was birthed in his own heart. The next place I would take you is to 2 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. And there was a lot of brokenness in this church. And Paul uh, graciously pointed out the ways they were missing the mark. So in 2 Corinthians, After their response, he's beginning to um, speak to them in the midst of their response. And he says, you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to life, to salvation, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, he's saying you could have been made sorry because you were busted or uh, it was gonna have ramifications for you or you just didn't like how people were gonna perceive and think of you, or you didn't wanna call it that, but instead you actually had godly sorrow. You knew that you were missing out on the life that God wanted to give you. And so your sorrow was God-focused. What did that godly sorrow do? It produced in you earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation towards sin, alarm, longing, concern, and readiness to see justice done. To, to see things made right again. See, godly sorrow actually is good and it produces lasting change because it's motivated toward these ends. It's not just beating ourselves up. It's not just afraid of what people will think of us or the consequences of here and now. The next place I would take you, the last place is Romans 6. What's happening here is, is a church and Paul, as he's writing, he's perceiving, maybe you're just gonna think that God's grace is so good you can do whatever you want. This is what he says. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may just increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, who are identified with Jesus, were baptized into his death. So we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, if we know that sin leads to death and we've died to that and now we have new life available to us, why would we live in this way of life any longer? See, if we actually didn't see sin as a checklist, but we saw it as this is not the way it's supposed to be, why would we continue to live life the way it's not supposed to be purposefully, willfully, And he continues, now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, not slaves to sin anymore, but servants of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, to life change. And the result is real eternal life. For the wages or the cost of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're free from sin. If sin enslaves us and puts us in a prison, whether we want it to or not, whether, whether we hate the sin or we don't want it to, but we are all trapped by this broken way of life. And Jesus opens that prison cell and he frees us, why would we hang out in the cell any longer? Why wouldn't we go experience life with him, this new life, this transformed life that he wants to meet us with even in our brokenness still? Why would we keep going back to the jail cell? Where I I want us to land here is yes, God is just, right? He allows the consequences of our sin to play out in our life. But God also is forgiving. And if you've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. (laughs) God will gladly pay that cost on behalf of you to have you back with Him and experience life with Him. So I'd ask you do you believe that your life belongs to God, that He created you and should define your life? Do you believe that you failed to live within God's design in more than one way? Not just one way, but more than one way. We've all failed. And do you believe that he forgives you and he wants you to experience life with him and from him? I'd encourage you to go back through some of those passages I moved through very quickly and ask yourself, God, how do I need to experience your forgiving and transforming grace in my life right now? God, how do I need to trust your forgiveness and receive your forgiveness in a real way this week? I'd like to invite the band out and and pray for us even now. God, just thank you for being compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loyal in love and faithful, and even forgiving that you see our condition and you don't condemn us. You don't hate us. You don't push us away, God, but you forgive. You pay the cost and you step in the gap. And I know there are many of us here this weekend who are afraid to meet you there. All of us have brokenness and failure and sin in our life, God. And for those of us who are experiencing it, God, I pray that you would help us to continue to know and receive your forgiveness. But God, those of us who are afraid to either let you into certain parts of our life, God, would you just open us up to the person of Jesus? Would you help us to hear and receive that neither do I you? that your death and your resurrection are perfect for us? God, whatever healing you need to do this week, and I pray that you would do it and that we would give all the praise and glory to you. Thank you for your goodness and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.